Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Hello and Merry Christmas from the Cost of Glory. Today, a shorter episode on a Santa you may not be familiar with that I think you can learn something from, a powerful man. You know, most people, when they think of Santa Claus, they think of St. Nicholas. You go down the chimney with old St. Nicholas, don't you? And it's true, the name of Santa Claus derives from St. Nicholas, who was a real person originally. He was from Asia Minor, modern Turkey. He was St. Nicholas of Myra. He was a Greek Christian bishop who lived in the 4th century AD, and he was known for bestowing gifts upon the poor out of his immense Christian charity. But in some countries, it's not St. Nicholas who gives gifts to children around Christmas time. In Greece, it's actually another saint, St. Basil of Caesarea, I. Vasili, or Aios Vasilios. And his name day is on January 1st in the Eastern churches, so that's when kids get presents, typically. And usually on this podcast, we spend our time looking at Greek and Roman heroes of Plutarch's lives. St. Basil was born around 330, which puts him about a generation after St. Nicholas. So he was a couple centuries after Plutarch. But Basil was a Greek and a Roman as well. He was also from Asia Minor, like St. Nicholas. And Asia Minor was a part of the Roman Empire at that time. And to many today, Basil is kind of a hero. He's a different sort of a hero. He's a Christian saint. So I thought, in the spirit of the season, it's worth taking a brief look at his life to see if we can take something away from it. He was actually a pretty remarkable leader. Basil, as I said, was born around 330 in what's now central Turkey, a region then called Cappadocia. And the first Greek to ever rule there, very briefly, you may recall, was Eumenes of Cardia, Alexander's secretary. Basil was born into a wealthy family from the leadership classes of society, uh, but they were also a very devout family. And several of his siblings even went on to become canonized as saints themselves in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It was a big family. And his mother became a saint too, Saint Emilia. And Basil had a proper secular education, and in his early 20s, he was on track to become a lawyer, or something like that. In his youth, he studied and mastered all the authors that were considered to be the classics by then, the Greek classics, such as Homer, Euripides, Demosthenes, Plato, and there was certainly a good helping of Plutarch in there as well. And you can see the imprint of his education in his writings. He has a very high quality, very clear classical prose style. And they called the kind of education that he got rhetoric, which was their word for basically the art of public speaking. Basil studied rhetoric and a smattering of philosophy at several places, uh, but they included 
the famous city of Athens, and that's where he met a lifelong friend, another Cappadocian kid named Gregory, who went on to become a bishop also, and a saint, Gregory Nazianzus, a.k.a. Gregory the Theologian. Now, Basil was headed for a brilliant career, maybe as a lawyer, maybe as a well-paid officer in the imperial administration, but he had a spiritual awakening around age 26, after spending some time with an influential holy man near his hometown. And he decided to swear off his secular career, his intellectual achievements in it, and to direct all of his talents to the service of the church. Bishops and priests back then were allowed to be married, but Basil decided not to take a wife so that he could devote himself fully to his mission of growing and strengthening the Christian community. One of the greatest problems facing the church in Basil's day ended up becoming the source of what was possibly his most important legacy. And that was conflict among various factions of Christians. Very often these factional conflicts ended up being expressed in theological debates. And before you start to doze off with all this religious mumbo-jumbo, you have to keep in mind that starting with Constantine, the Roman emperors were now Christians. Christians were still a minority in most of the empire, but they were a powerful and growing one, and the emperors tended to think of themselves as, in some sense, leaders of the church. Constantine died in 337 when Basil was a young boy. So these debates in Basil's day, though they were in substance about theology, there was actually a lot more going on. They were run through with big-time power politics, intrigues, schemes, and shenanigans. The stakes were extremely high. This was the imperial church. And if your faction won, it meant jobs, patronage, prestige, business opportunities, you name it. And of course, there was the spiritual component as well, which was certainly important to many people, including Basil and his friend Gregory. Now, the biggest factional conflict when Basil was coming of age was between Christians who accepted, on the one hand, the theological definitions about the nature of Jesus Christ that were proposed by a certain church council that took place at Nicaea in 323, and those, on the other hand, who rejected the definitions of that council. And the rejectors were often called the Arians. And there were many complications and splinter groups, uh, and the details don't really need to concern us here. But Basil and his friend Gregory, just to put it simply, they were on the side of the Christians who accepted the theology of Nicaea, the Nicenes. And St. Nicholas, the historical St. Nicholas, by the way, attended that council, and he was a pro-Nicene bishop. But when Basil and Gregory were entering on their careers, it seemed like most of the church was leaning the other direction, including the emperors themselves. Basil and Gregory really believed firmly, however, that the Nicene definition was basically right, and that it was by far the most representative of the Bible's version of Jesus, and they were willing to bet their careers on it. And so when they were just junior clergymen, they became activists. They staged public debates, for example, to showcase the different theological positions, and by doing that, they actually won a lot of people over to the Nicene position. And this was pretty bold. The emperor himself, who was favoring the Arian party, well, he tried to stop Basil. He sent agents to fix the problem. But at some point, the emperor realizes 
This guy Basil is so popular, the only way to stop him is probably to arrest him and maybe torture him, which is likely going to backfire in the court of public opinion. So he just says, forget about it. A Roman emperor has bigger fish to fry, like the invasion of the Visigoths along the Danube front. Basil's role as a sort of St. Nicholas figure in the Eastern churches is mostly due to his time as a bishop of Caesarea when he was elevated to that position at age 40. Caesarea is in central Turkey. And Basil was an incredible community organizer. He put together one of the first public soup kitchens when there was a famine in the area. He set up houses for the poor and orphans and widows to care for them like Jesus was constantly urging his followers to do. And there are many stories of Basil's generosity, sneaking gifts to those in need. It became legendary. Basil also founded a number of monasteries, including a great monastic complex just outside the city of Caesarea. He raised the money, he laid down a community charter, he put together a book of rules and discipline and guidance. That document went on to become foundational, influential for the whole history of monasticism, and it's still used extensively today. So he was a founder in the fullest sense. And all this time, all this time, while his ecclesiastical enemies or dining with the emperor, whispering in his ear, Basil was slowly, quietly building a network of supporters for his theological view, based on his firm conviction that the Nicene faction was the group with truth and justice on its side. And he withstood all kinds of imperial pressure, sometimes outright persecution, and there were many intrigues from other rival churchmen trying to slander him or undermine him and his friends and get their jobs. And Basil died relatively young as a dissident, still in disfavor with the emperor sometime in the mid-370s. But that emperor, Emperor Valens, died himself in 378 in a massive military catastrophe. He died in battle when the Roman forces were overwhelmingly defeated in a great upset against the Visigoths, the Battle of Adrianople. The next emperor, Theodosius, took the throne, and once he cleaned up the Gothic mess with some successful military campaigns, he surveyed the church politics scene, and he observed that by then, by the early 380s, there was a powerful and really undislodgeable network of bishops, priests, monks, and lay people in very close proximity to the eastern capital, Constantinople, that were concentrated along key trade routes and military highways, key logistical conduits. And they were essentially Basil's men. They were Nicenes. And most of the bishops of the far west, the Latin-speaking churches, they were Nicenes as well. Basil was dead, but his political network, or his spiritual network, maybe, they were better organized, they were denser on the ground in some of the most important strategic areas of the Eastern Roman Empire. And Theodosius made the obvious choice. The theology of the Nicenes is going to be the theology of the imperial church. Period. End of story. He called a council, and he assisted the bishops in making it official. And this basically settled the matter for Christian history. And some historians credit Basil as possibly the most important figure in making that happen. So what I think this story shows is 
Well, say you've got a firm conviction about something, but everyone in power seems to be supporting your competitors. They're at the best parties. They control all the gatekeepers. Well, if your cause is really worth it, maybe you need to be playing the long game, building your grassroots network, winning over supporters one by one. And you might not even live to see that victory. But Basil, at least, was probably okay with that. And it might be that even if you become the architect of a great revolution that happens after you die, people in the end will remember you more for something else you did, for the time that you spent giving to those in need, for example. May you have the energy and focus to do your most important work, whatever it is, in your short stay on this earth. And may St. Basil bless your best endeavors and your family as well. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.